Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. Uh, if you're new to Trinity, I really want to extend a special welcome to you. I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be uh, out in the back in the, in the entrance hall. As many of you know, uh, this fall we have been working our way through the first part of the book of Genesis. And as we've seen already, many of the most important themes and truths and storylines in Scripture find their beginning, at least in seed form, in these chapters. We find out in these chapters what God says about the nature of the physical world and how it came to be. We find out in these chapters our own nature and dignity as the image and likeness of God. And we're given our calling in the world to multiply God's image and to rule over God's creation in a way that faithfully bears his image. We discover the significance of maleness and femaleness, the goodness of difference and the beauty of unity. We find that we were made to rest in God's power, provision, and grace, even as we go about our calling. And then for the last few weeks, we've, we've looked into what corrupts this good world and ruptures our relationship with God, as well as our relationships with one another. Beginning with a naively prideful rejection of God as God in the garden, we've seen the shame and insecurity that flows from this separation from God, and the hostility and the violence that then flows from this shame and insecurity. Last week, Chris led us through Genesis 4 and 5, where we see the line of Adam's son Cain seeking to make a life for themselves apart from God, which leads to increasing pride, to vengeance, and to the abuse of the institution of marriage. And yet through all of this, we've seen that God continues to move toward humanity and grace. What we call common grace on all of humanity, continuing to bless his creatures with a generous and undeserved measure of protection, justice, and agency in this world to create culture, to create goods. But we also see God moving toward us, uh, preserving us and showing saving grace to Adam and Eve and to the line of Seth who call on the name of the Lord and who trust in the Lord. And what we find in our passage today is that both of these themes, that of human rebellion as well as God's grace, reach their climax, at least within the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11. And we're going to be reading about that in Genesis 6 today. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles or in your order of worship to Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for the teaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us this morning by your spirit. And Lord, we call upon you when we ask that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you, we might see your holiness, we might see your majesty, we might see your great love and mercy more clearly. Lord, I pray for faithful teaching of your word and give us receptive hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive into uh, the thick of our passage, in order to kind of clear the ground a bit uh, before we do, it's probably helpful to acknowledge that the biblical account of the flood raises a number of questions for people. And, and while they're not the focus of, of this morning, uh, they might be distracting if I don't say anything at all. And so first, is, is this really a, a universal flood covering the whole earth? A couple of thoughts here. The Bible, including Genesis, does use comprehensive universal language hyperbolically at times to describe things that appear to be more limited in scope, such as the, quote, whole world coming to Pharaoh in Egypt for food during the famine that we later see in Genesis. And yet, when we read the account of the flood, the author's intentionality and overwhelming repetition of the comprehensive nature of this judgment on all of humanity and throughout the earth is certainly difficult to work around uh, for those who would be inclined 
to do so. Whatever the case may be, Jesus' Jesus's words in the Gospel and the New Testament epistles affirm the historic authenticity of the flood. And they point to it as a sign of his future cataclysmic judgment when he will certainly bring universal justice. It's also interesting that there are over 200 ancient accounts of a catastrophic flood throughout the continents, including the Americas, providing support for, perhaps providing support for this universal view. And while some scholars would see these, these various accounts, and particularly the Mesopotamian accounts of the gods sending floods to control overpopulation or to quiet the noise of humanity, uh, they would see those as the original source of Genesis. Uh, the biblical account is such an improvement, an improvement on the specificity and the believability of these accounts that that theory is difficult to believe in itself. Ultimately, God's word affirms the flood as much more than a mythical story. It affirms it as an historic reality and points to universality. The, the other question that, that we should touch on uh, more, that is more internal to the text itself, uh, is, is the nature of the sons of God in verse 2, who come to the daughters of man and take any of them they choose as wives. Now, throughout the history of the church, the identity of the sons of God uh, has had three main views, three main perspectives on this. Now, I actually had an extended explanation of these views prepared for you this morning, and then I thought better of it. Uh, so if, if the four or five of you who are interested uh, in that more extended view uh, want to hear more, just you know, talk to me or email me. Uh, but in summary form, the three main views are that the sons of God are, uh, are, are one, that they are the godly line of Adam's son Seth, turning corrupt now by marrying outside of all who call on the name of the Lord. Second view is that they are fallen angelic beings, demons who have taken on human form. And three, that they are the wicked line of Adam's son Cain, who multiply the sins of Lamech, whom we saw last week. And they become powerful warlords who, who take harems to themselves. And in their pride, they boast of themselves as sons of God, as we know was common among ancient Near Eastern kings. Now, believe it or not, there, there are actually really good reasons for each one of these views. Uh, and in good company with, with people who are a lot smarter than I am, I lean slightly toward a, a hybrid of the last two, that the, that the sons of God were warlords or tyrants from the line of Cain, probably influenced by demonic possession. But you could hold any of those three. Faithfully, I think. Whoever the sons of God were, my hope is that through Noah and the ark, we're going to see two ways this morning that our lives are hidden in Christ. Two ways that our lives are hidden in Christ through Noah and the ark. This weekend, uh, your elders were on a local retreat, like an evening morning retreat, thinking and, and discussing and praying about what it looks, for, what it looks like for us to shepherd this body well, to shepherd this body of God's people uh, in a way that reflects Paul's words in Acts 20, Acts chapter 20. And one of the things that we did 
in our breaks over meals in order to get to know each other better was to give a short toast to someone in our lives who, who was not at the table. I toasted my dad. And as I thought about that toast yesterday and, and my own childhood, it struck me how happy children generally are to be hidden, so to speak, in the lives of their parents. When we're really little, we're happy to be almost literally hidden in our parents' protective arms, wrapped up and secure in their embrace. But then even as we get just a little bit older and are not held as frequently, we're quite content to be figuratively hidden in our parents' lives, hidden in their abilities, hidden in their accomplishments. Their accomplishments are our accomplishments when we're little. My dad's athletic accomplishments were my athletic accomplishments when I was little. Their hard-earned food was my hard-earned food. I suppose that last part could last for several decades. But we're content to be hidden in them. And so what does this look like in our relationship with Christ? First, we're going to see the ark as a shadow of Christ, our atonement. And second, Noah as a shadow of Christ, our righteousness. And so first, the ark as a shadow of Christ, our atonement. The the Hebrew word translated as atone literally means to cover. And in the Old Testament, it's used over a hundred times as a covering for sin, a covering over sin, usually in the context of the temple sacrifices that God prescribed for the forgiveness of sin. And the idea here is that that the sacrificial animals, which took the just punishment for sins as a substitute for the offerer, served to, to temporarily cover or shield God's people from his righteous wrath against sin or evil. In the flood, the ark quite literally serves as the atoning cover for Noah and his family, shielding them from God's rightful and righteous anger against the evil that he sees corrupting and destroying his creatures and his creation. It's interesting to know here uh, that, that the Hebrew word for pitch that we see in verse 14, an apparently waterproof substance with which God told Noah to seal the ark, it's actually the same Hebrew word as atonement or covering. And I don't want to make too much uh, of this. The point still stands, regardless of how much we make of this. But we we could say that the ark was sealed with atonement. This atoning pitch literally sealed them in and protected them from the judgment so that none of the waters of judgment came through. And we do need to talk uh, about the uncomfortable subject of God's judgment here. Not only because it's a major part, Uh, of the story, but especially because Genesis 6 provides us with some of the deepest insight that we have in all of Scripture as to how God feels about sin, about evil. Verse 5 tells us that, that the sin that infects all of us in every part of our being had reached a high point. Or actually, probably better to say it had, it had reached a low point. And, and we're told in verse 6 that, that God is grieved in his heart by this evil, even to the point that he he regrets 
having made man on this earth. What are we to make of this? Of course, no earthly parents have the view on evil that God saw and still sees. But God's coexisting hatred of sin and grief over sin is to some degree like parents who have a righteous anger when one of their children deeply hurts another one of their kids, emotionally or spiritually. And yet at the same time, they grieve over the sinfulness of the child that they love. In this passage, we see the heart of God toward his creatures. He, he grieves over our sin. We see the same thing in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, where, where we're called not to grieve the Spirit of God with whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. And we shouldn't skim over these things. The fact that God grieves over our sins tells us that sin is, is, is never an abstract, impersonal transgression. Sin is not like a parking meter violation where we get a QR code and, and pay online. Where we keep everything at arm's length. Because God cares deeply for us, sin is always personal. And while not wanting to, to grieve our Heavenly Father is not the only motive in Scripture or in our lives for seeking purity and seeking holiness, Ephesians 4 tells us that it should be one of them, that we don't want to grieve our good and loving Heavenly Father. Now, all of this, of course, doesn't mean that God is ruled by his emotions or that he experiences emotion in the same way uh, that we do or just like we do. Nor does it mean that God changes his mind like we do. When we realize that we were thinking wrongly or we weren't thinking optimally about something or we made a mistake, and so we now go in a different direction. It's very clear from all of Scripture that, that God is outside of time and unchanging in his character. He's unchanging in his covenant promises. He's unchanging in his eternal counsel, which is, which is a fancy word for God's sovereign plans for the world. But God also created time. It's not lost on him. And therefore, he always engages with his creation in a way that is perfectly consistent with his unchanging character so that we are able to experience our God in time. And so while this language of grief and regret is accommodated to our understanding in an analogical kind of way, it's still given to communicate real truth about our Heavenly Father, even if we can't fully understand it. It tells us that God grieves to see the creatures he made in his image and likeness being corrupted and corrupting one another and that he will make an end of that corruption just as he will make a final end of it when Christ returns. In fact, both Jesus and the Apostle Peter in the New Testament point to the catastrophic judgment of the flood as the primary signpost or shadow in the Old Testament, pointing ahead to Jesus' final judgment at his return. And the ark, on the other hand, is probably the clearest picture God has given us of what it means for our lives to be hidden in Christ, to be hidden from that judgment. One thing I can guarantee you this morning is that no one has come up with a better sermon illustration for what it means to be hidden in Christ than Noah's Ark. 
Just as Noah and his family built and entered the ark by faith and were hidden in the ark of atonement, covered from judgment, through faith, our lives are hidden in Christ. He is our atonement. He is our sacrificial covering. And through his death and resurrection, we are brought through the waters of judgment. We are brought through safely from the waters of judgment. 1 Peter 3 makes precisely this analogy when it compares the flood to the sign of baptism that we receive when we enter the covenant community of God's people. He compares it to this sign of baptism which, which proclaims to us that in Christ we are saved from the baptismal waters of judgment, which of course also bring cleansing to us as they brought cleansing in the flood. God has provided another ark of grace, a better ark of grace for a more final judgment and a permanent salvation. And that ark, friends, is Christ. And he calls us to enter that ark by faith, to be united in Christ by faith. If you are not a Christian this morning, um, you need to know that there's no entrance fee to this ark. Jesus built this ark, which is his own body and blood. And the only requirement for admission is stepping into the ark by faith. There is no entrance fee. And if you are a Christian, I want to ask you what you're doing this week, what will you do in the week to come with continuing struggles, with feelings of guilt, of shame, fear of judgment, Remember that you are in Christ. Remember that you are in the ark of grace. Continue to believe the good news that God has provided an ark for us in Christ, a better ark, our atonement, our covering from his good and righteous judgment. <clears throat> the second image we see in our passage this morning is Noah as a shadow of Christ. Our righteousness. In other words, Noah's life points us to the perfect righteousness that we have in Christ. Now, this can be this can be misconstrued. So it's important to say that this doesn't mean that Noah w- was saved by his righteousness, by his own goodness. As we already saw, Noah had to get in the ark of grace too. He got in that ark by faith. A few chapters later, confirms that. That Noah was indeed a sinner. And Hebrews 11 confirms that, that Noah had a righteousness that came by faith alone. And yet there is a sense that Noah is a Christ figure. A, a shadow of what was to come in Christ. He was a godly man. He's described as righteous and blameless in verse 9. He was the epitome of a countercultural life. For starters, he had only one wife in contrast to the self-gratifying polygamy in the culture. And by the way, this is just a side note. It's interesting that both here in Genesis 6, which is one of the strongest descriptions of evil in the entire Old Testament, and that then again in Romans 1, which is the strongest description of evil in the New Testament, that, that sexual sin's at the top of both lists. We don't, we don't have time to expand on this, but, but we, should, we should take note of that. 
God's greatest gifts to us, such as relationships and intimacy, are the ones that we are most tempted to turn into idols. But Noah, it, he's countercultural. He's countercultural in his view on and practice of marriage. He's also a preacher of, of righteousness, we're told in the New Testament. Like Jesus, who came proclaiming the kingdom of God, Noah was not afraid to serve as a prophetic voice in his day. But the place where we most clearly see Noah as a shadow of Christ's righteousness is in the specific covenant obligations that God gives to Noah as it relates to the flood. In verse 18, the word covenant is explicitly used for the first time in Scripture. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now this, this is part of God's bigger covenant of grace with his people that he started back in the garden when he clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins and he made a promise that Eve's offspring would crush the evil serpent's head. <clears throat> and Noah's specific representative role in this bigger covenant of grace is to build the ark through which his family will be saved and through which the line of the promised savior from Eve's offspring will be spared. And we see Noah's covenant faithfulness in verse 22. It says, Noah did this. Right after all these instructions about building the ark, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then we see this refrain repeated three times in the next chapter, always specifically in regard to Noah's covenant faithfulness in building the ark. I want, I want to commend to you the exercise of pondering just how much Noah gave up to build this ark in faithfulness to God's covenant. He spent his life, he spent his reputation, he spent his sweat equity, he spent an unbelievable amount of resources in order to be faithful in building this ark over a really long time. His life is an example of faithfulness to God and an encouragement to us to trust in God with all of our time, to trust him with all of our resources, with everything that we have. I want to encourage you in that exercise. What, is, what does that look like for you and for me? And yet as wonderful an example as Noah is of faithfulness, his role as humanity's representative in God's covenant of grace is only a shadow of Jesus' fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Noah, Noah had a very specific role in building the ark, and he did it faithfully. Jesus, on the other hand, came to fulfill all righteousness, came to fulfill all righteousness before God on our behalf. All of the many ways that we have failed to keep God's good and perfect law in thought, in word, and in deed, Jesus kept them all for us. He is our righteousness before God. He is the restoration of our confidence before God and before man. All of our shame and insecurities before others ultimately stem from our shame and uncertainty in the presence of God. We saw this back in Genesis 3 in the garden. And so this week, when all of us will inevitably struggle with some kind of insecurity at school, 
or at work or in our friendships or in our parenting or in our marriages or at church? Will we look to ourselves and try to hide or overcome all of our shortcomings? As Janae led us in confession earlier. Will we look to ourselves and try to hide or overcome all of our shortcomings? Or will we look to Christ, who has made us right with our Creator? Who is our righteousness? Look to Jesus. This week, if you doubt that God desires to hear your prayers, or even listen to your confession, because of the sins that weigh down your mind, Look to Jesus. He is your art. He is a better Noah. He is your righteousness. He is our atonement, our covering, and our righteousness. I'm going to reread Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which we read a little bit earlier. I want you to hear them again. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's okay for kids to outgrow being hidden in their earthly parents. It's good that they outgrow that. But we should never try to outgrow being hidden in Christ. In him are all the treasures of salvation. He is our defense against the flood of God's righteous judgment. He is our offense, our, our confidence as we go out into the world, as we pray to God, as we interact with others. He is our atonement and our righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I praise you because... Everything written in the past in the Old Testament scriptures um, was written to teach us as well for our encouragement and endurance in the faith. And we thank you this morning for this amazing picture of what it means to be hidden in you, Jesus. A better ark, a better Noah. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray that this week we would live inside the ark of Christ. That we would live inside our better Noah, Lord. That we would live in the confidence, the security, the protection, the shield of your great love and mercy for us in him. In Jesus' name, amen.